Hello and welcome to My Daily Trivia. I'm your host, Danny. Today is Thursday, September 21st, and I hope that you, yes you, are having a wonderful day. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to say welcome. My Daily Trivia is a 10-round quiz show with no specific themes, no specific topics, and no specific categories. But guess what? We do have an episode every day, Monday through Friday, with each day getting progressively harder. So, obviously, today is Thursday, which means that today will be relatively challenging. It's not going to be as hard as Friday, but we're getting there. We're getting to the uh, to the harder end of the scale, I would say. Now, as always, if you find this episode to be a bit too challenging for yourself, well, I encourage you to listen to our other episodes. In fact, I think you should listen to Friday as well. You never know. You might surprise yourself. You might know the answer to a pretty difficult question. And hey, even if you don't, you might learn something cool along the way. Now, if you find this episode to be a bit too simple, well, I have good news for you. Tomorrow is going to be even harder. So without any further delay, let's get into today's round of questions with question number one. What Canadian city, often associated with the Klondike Gold Rush, served as the starting point for many of the Klondike prospectors? And that city is called Dawson City. Now, Dawson City, being called a city, it might be a bit of a stretch. I looked it up. There's about 1,300 people that currently live in Dawson City. But at one time, it was pretty sizable. Now, the Klondike Gold Rush was a migration by an estimated 100,000 prospectors to the Klondike region of Yukon in northwestern Canada between 1896 and 1899. This happened after gold was discovered there by local miners. To accommodate the prospectors, boomtowns sprang up along the routes. At their terminus, Dawson City was founded at the confluence of the Klondike and the Yukon Rivers. From a population of 500 people in 1896, the town grew to house approximately 30,000 people by the summer of 1898. Now, built out of wood, very isolated, and incredibly unsanitary. Dawson suffered from fires, high prices, and epidemics. To me, it sounds like kind of a miserable place to live at the end of the 19th century, but there were some people there that actually struck gold and made it rich. So for them, I hope it was worth it. But that was in Dawson City that served as the starting point for much of the Klondike Gold Rush. Question number two. Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, known for his leadership during World War II, was also a prolific writer. What is the title of the six-volume memoir that he wrote about his experiences during the war? Now, it's kind of an uninspiring title but the series was called The Second World War. The Second World War is a history of the period from the end of the First World War to July 1945, written by Winston Churchill. Churchill wrote the book with a team of assistants, using both his own notes and privileged access to official documents while he was still working as a politician. Churchill was 
relatively fair in his treatment, but he did write the history from his personal point of view. He was actually unable to reveal certain facts, as some of them, such as the case of the ultra-electronic intelligence, actually had to remain secret. Now, I've personally read the first work of this series. Uh, that work was titled The Gathering Storm. And what I can tell you about it, it is entirely captivating. The way that he writes, there's so much drama, there's so much history. Every sentence is is incredibly powerful. It packs a punch. It's a huge book. It took me a while to get through, but I really enjoyed it. And I can honestly say that if the other five books are as good as that one, well, perhaps I should read them too, and perhaps maybe we, sh we all should. But that is from the series called The Second World War by Winston Churchill. Moving on to question number three. In ancient Japan, what term is used to describe the code of honor and moral principles that samurai warriors were expected to follow? And that was called the Bushido Code. Bushido, which means the way of the warrior, is a moral code concerning samurai attitudes, behavior, and lifestyle formalized in the Edo period. Now, for reference, that Edo period was from 1603 to 1868. There are multiple types of Bushido, which evolved significantly through history, although contemporary forms of Bushido are still used in the social and economic organization of Japan today. Bushido is also used as an overarching term for all the codes, practices, philosophies, and principles of samurai culture. Although there are major differences, it is loosely analogous to the European concept of chivalry that often um, knights of European countries were expected to display. So perhaps if you're from a Western culture and you're trying to think of the Bushido code, that's maybe a decent parallel. Not perfect, but a decent parallel. So once again, that is the Bushido code, the code of honor and moral principles of the samurai. Question number four. What is the name of the traditional Indonesian textile dyeing technique known for its intricate and detailed patterns? often featuring flora and fauna motifs. And that technique is called batik. Try saying that five times fast. Batik technique. Batik technique. Well, it's known as the batik technique. Batik is an Indonesian technique of wax-resist dyeing applied to the whole cloth. This technique originated from the island of Java, Indonesia. Batik is made either by drawing dots and lines of the resist with a spouted tool called a canting, or by printing the resist with a copper stamp called a cap. The applied wax resists dyes and therefore allows the artisan to color selectively by soaking the cloth in one color, then removing the wax with boiling water and repeating if multiple colors are desired. Now, to me, it sounds like a very arduous and complicated process, but I did look up some batik technique cloths, and they do look quite nice. So hats off to the Indonesians for discovering the batik technique. Question number five. 
1945, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on two different Japanese cities during World War II. What are the names of those two cities? And those two cities were Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On the 6th and 9th of August, 1945, the United States detonated two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombings killed between 129,000 and 226,000 people, most of whom were civilians, and these remain the only use of nuclear weapons in an armed conflict to date. Japan surrendered to the Allies on the 15th of August, six days after the bombing of Nagasaki and the Soviet Union declaration of war against Japan and the invasion of Japanese-occupied Manchuria. The Japanese government signed the Instrument of Surrender on the 2nd of September, effectively ending the war. So, once again, those two Japanese cities where the two atomic bombs were dropped were Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Question number six. What is the term used to describe the fermented mixture of flour and water used to make sourdough bread, which contains naturally occurring wild yeast and lactic acid bacteria? And that term is called starter. The preparation of sourdough begins with a pre-ferment, also known as starter, a fermented mixture of flour and water containing a colony of microorganisms, including wild yeast and lactobacilli. The purpose of the starter is to produce a vigorous leaven and to develop the flavor of the bread. In practice, there are several kinds of starters as the ratio of water to flour in the starter can vary. Now, here's a fun fact. One of the oldest sourdough breads actually dates from 3700 BC, and it was excavated in Switzerland. I don't know about you, but if someone told me that that bread was safe to eat, I think I would like to try it. Just, just a nibble, just to see what it tasted like, as long as it was safe to eat. But once again, that all starts from a mixture of flour and water called starter. By the way, do you remember, I just thought of this, do you remember, remember in COVID, first few months of COVID, when everybody was getting into starter, do you remember that? Perhaps even you were. My mom was doing it, my sister was doing it, I had friends that were doing it, maybe even some of the listeners out there were doing it. I just thought of that, that was kind of fun. So I guess we all should have known the answer to that question, because we all had our, we, we all learned about starter in 2020. In any case, <laughs> let's move on to question number seven. In what city was the 1972 terrorist attack on the Israeli Olympic team? And that attack took place in Munich, Germany. The Munich massacre was a terrorist attack carried out during the 1972 Summer Olympics in Munich, West Germany by eight members of the Palestinian militant organization Black September. 
they infiltrated the Olympic Village, killed two members of the Israeli Olympic team, and took nine others hostage. Now, unfortunately, and quite tragically, all nine of the other hostages ended up dying in the rescue efforts that were put on by the West German police. So, that all took place in 1972, during the Olympics in Munich, Germany. Question number eight. Jean-Paul Gaultier is known for designing iconic costumes for which famous singer's world tour in the 1990s? Okay, famous singer, iconic costumes, 1990s. Did you guess Madonna? Because if you did, you'd be right. Jean-Paul Gaultier is a French haute couture and prêt-à-porter fashion designer. He is described as a, quote, enfant terrible of the fashion industry and is known for his unconventional designs with motifs including corsets, marinés, and tin cans. In 1990, he was selected to design Madonna's clothes for her Blonde Ambition World Tour. Which doesn't surprise me at all. That sounds like it's right up Madonna's alley. Of course, she would have a French designer designing the costumes just for her world tour. So that was Madonna and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Question number nine. On average, how many grams of salt are in one liter of seawater? And the answer there is 35 grams. That's roughly 3.5%, 3.5%. Now in seawater, there is typically close to 35 grams of dissolved salts in each liter. But this ranges between 33 and 37 grams per liter. Now, if you would have guessed somewhere in that range, so let's say 33 to 37, I probably would have given it to you. I think that's a pretty good guess. And that's kind of the, the average range. But just like as in weather, where there are areas of high pressure, there's areas of low pressure, the ocean has areas of high and low salinity. The highest salinity of any body of water is actually not in the ocean. It's actually found in a lake in Russia, a lake called Lake Elton. And that lake has an average salinity of 50 grams per liter. So the ocean averages 35, right, 3.5%, but this lake that one averages 50 grams. That's about 5%. So once again, seawater, roughly 35 grams per liter. Again, that range, 33, 37. I'll give it to you. I'm a nice guy. I think that's a pretty good guess. I certainly didn't guess that much. So if, if you guess that, I think that's a good answer for you. Moving on to the last question of the day. Question number 10. Who is considered the father of classical ballet, and choreographed the most famous ballet, Swan Lake. And the father of classical ballet is Marius Petipa. Marius Petipa was a French and Russian ballet dancer, pedagogue, 
and choreographer. Patipa is one of the most influential ballet masters and choreographers in ballet history. Patipa created over 50 ballets, some of which have survived in versions either faithful to, inspired by, or reconstructed, reconstructed from the original. All of the full-length works and individual pieces which have survived in active performance are still to this day considered to be the cornerstones of the ballet repertoire. Now, I looked up Marius Petipa. Obviously, I did some research on Marius Petipa. And I have to say, Marius Petipa does not strike me as a ballet dancer. Marius Petipa looks like a Russian that lived in the 1800s. I'm telling you that. But perhaps that's exactly what all the Russians looked like back then. So why wouldn't the ballet dancers look like that? It's not what they look like now. But I can tell you that if that man was walking down the street, you pointed at him and said he was a ballet dancer, I wouldn't believe you. Nonetheless, he's the father of classical ballet. He's Marius Petipa. So that will conclude this round of My Daily Trivia. If you found this round to be a bit too simple, not to worry. You can check in tomorrow. Friday's going to be the hardest day of the week. Of course, if you found this episode to be a bit too challenging, if it was a little too hard for you, I think you should check it out anyway. You might have fun. You might learn something along the way. I encourage you to tell your friends, tell your family about our show. We're always trying to grow the community here. I want to thank each of you again for listening to My Daily Trivia. I'm your host, Danny, and I will see all of you tomorrow.